Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tanellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Well, listeners, what a treat for you all today. I have the pleasure of welcoming Burr Carroll to the podcast. Burr is the author of eight novels and her latest, The Missing Pieces of Sophie McCarthy, was published late in 2018 by Penguin Random House. It's the first to be published under B.M. Carroll. Welcome, Burr. Thank you, Claudine. It's lovely to be talking to you today. It's lovely to be talking to you. And I was fascinated by the premise of this book. It's a gripping insight into the ripple effect of one incident, one moment in time, one lapse in concentration, and how that event can change lives forever. Um, yes, I guess it is. Um, and I've always been fascinated um, with the idea that, you know, we can all be careless and um and when we are careless, sometimes we get away with it and sometimes we don't get away with it. And in this particular scenario, um, someone's carelessness has a big impact on Sophie, the main character in the book. Um, and even though he's not impacted at all, she's impacted significantly. Her life and her health and her relationships, everything's impacted. Um, and that was something that's been on my mind for quite some time, the idea that, you know, unfairness um sometimes life is very unfair i guess indeed and can you tell me was there any particular inciting incident that inspired you to write this book or was it just that general notion um it was a particular incident and um and because um i can't exactly say what happened because the reader doesn't know what happened until a little bit bit into the book um but um it happened to a family member um and as i said her life was very severely impacted um, but the person responsible, you know, wasn't impacted at all. I mean, he was very sorry, um, but it made me think about, you know, those situations where being sorry can't remedy the damage that's been done. Um, and also, you know, in something that's so unfair, how that um, unfairness might fester in a certain type of individual. Now, that said, the person involved um, in what happened in real life was so traumatized by what happened, she didn't want to speak about it. So she didn't help me with the research or anything like that. It was just, you know, purely the spark of the idea came from what happened to her, but she wasn't involved in any of the research for the book. Okay, I see. And so for those who haven't read it yet, are you able to tell us a little bit more about the story? Um, it's such a hard story to talk about. Um, I usually end up going round and round and round in circles. But um, needless to say, um, Sophie McCarthy is the central character, funnily enough, as her name is emblazoned on the front cover of the book. And um, this terrible event happens to her. And it's about the impact of that event and the impact on her family and the impact on the family of the perpetrator. Um, and um, it's very hard to say, you know, talk about in, in depth, but it doesn't move perspectives between all those different people um, and the and the plot builds. And Sophie is far from a perfect person. Um, you know, she is, um, you know, one of those people who we all know who's um, who you half admire and half hate. Um, and um, and in particular, we see Sophie at work and she works her staff really, really hard. She's a very hard taskmaster. 
Um, and we're trying to marry that idea of Sophie, who's this really tough boss and very ambitious and very brilliant, trying to marry that Sophie um, with Sophie, who's the victim. Um, and, you know, who's, um, you know, um, not at fault in what happened. And um, and so the story is told by all these people who are close to her. And um, that's really all I can say without giving the plot away. No, no, that's fantastic. <laughs> the next um, time I write a book, I'm going to write a book where I can just say outright what it's about. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so I just want to explore that a little bit more. Sophie is the victim of this devastating incident. And reading about her injuries, I mean, you, you get it from the first page, um, you know, it's a daily struggle and it's hard not to feel sorry for her, to regret, you know, the once bright future that she had. And I and I thought that you did a marvellous job of putting us in her shoes and giving us an insight on what her pain levels were like and how they how this impacted on her life, especially since her injuries weren't visible from the outside. So I wanted to ask you, how did you do this? And did you have to do much, much research around chronic pain and that pain management and things like that? I did. I, I had to do a lot of research, um, and I um, thankfully um, there's so much online these days. I spend a lot of time on pain forums, um, listening to people talking firsthand about their pain and the impact it has on their lives. Um, not something you should ever do if you want to cheer yourself up. It, it is. <laughs> It is very sad. Know, it is extremely yeah. sad. And yeah. it's particularly difficult when the injuries aren't visible. Yeah. Um, and when somebody looks okay. Um, I think we sometimes forget to be sympathetic. And we're all so busy with our lives and we, we all want to move on. And I think that when something big like this happens, we have a time frame in our heads where we're prepared to give sympathy. And beyond that, you know, sympathy becomes more and more scarce. So I wanted to look at that too, um, you know, how um, sometimes when something is invisible, um, we all don't react the way that we should react. We don't actually find out what happened to Sophie until about a third of the way in. But by then, I, I have to say, you've made it nearly impossible for readers to empathise with Sophie. Um, in fact, I, I, I downright, downright disliked her most of the time. And yet, <laughs> I, I couldn't, couldn't put the book down. I had to keep reading. Well, um, and look, this is it. She's she's a very flawed character, and um, and that was something that was on my mind as I was writing the book. Just because you're a victim doesn't mean you're a saint. Yeah. Um. So she's a flawed character, but you know there are you know some good people around her, and hopefully there's enough good in the book to balance the bad. Um. And really, even though she's not very sympathetic, she. To me, she is very realistic. She's somebody we all know. And and when the book was being edited, my editors really wanted to make Sophie more psychopathic. Um, and we had arguments down the lines of she's not a psychopath, she's a sociopath. And the difference being is that a sociopath is an everyday person. Mm. Um, we all you know, we all know them. They just go too far in some aspects of life, but they're not all bad. Um, and that was really important to me that she was somebody that we all know at the end of the day and that she was, you know, realistic. Absolutely. And I, I don't say that as a criticism of the book. It, it, it is. It's, it's a very realistic portrayal because we're all flawed um, in, yeah. in a very real sense. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess that's why, you know, I had to keep reading. 
<laughs> good, that's good. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's many books out there that are told from different perspectives, but what I found interesting about your book was that not only were there seven different perspectives, which was very impressive in itself, but that they were all told in the first person. Now, that's not something that you see all that often. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen it before. Can you explain why you did this and did it make the storytelling any easier or harder, do you think? Um, I have no idea why I did it um, <laughs> and it certainly wasn't an easy thing to do. Um, it was just the way the story came out. Um, but let me telling you, tell you, <laughs> you know, um, one of those voices is a child's voice. Um, that wasn't easy. Mm. Uh, one is a 60-year-old male. That wasn't easy. Yeah. Um, and then even with the females trying to distinguish between various females of similar age wasn't easy either. So it certainly, if I had been thinking straight, I wouldn't have written it like that. Um, but um, I did have to go back after I wrote the first draft and really, you know, pay attention to each individual voice and make sure that I stayed true to that voice throughout. And, and like, you know, for instance, I would say, okay, well, one day, all I'm going to do is work on Richard's chapters and Richard's voice. Um, and so that's how, you know, I was able to, you know, um, improve the, I guess, the, the believability of those voices. And, and, I, and actually, um, I thought that I would get hammered both by the editors and, you know, by readers for having seven different um, perspectives in the first person. Um, but nobody has said anything bad about it. Nobody has, you know, um, in fact, people have really liked it. So that's really nice. Um, so all the hard work, all the hard work was worth it. I definitely think so. I think it's a testament to your skill as a writer that each of your characters had such a unique voice and that you could dislike one so much and yet feel empathy and heartbreak for others. I thought the authenticity of each of those voices were, was remarkable. And I wondered, I guess, how, how did you do that? Was there lots of like, you know, as you said, you know, one of your characters was a 60-year-old male and one was a child. Um, so what, how, do, how would you do that? Is it like eavesdropping on lots of conversations that people have? Or how do you get inside the head of a 60-year-old male? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I guess um, as with all writing, I, I did it. And then I went back and I finessed it. So um, I think, and that's not a bad way to write because if you think too hard before you do it, you'll never write anything really. Um, it will stop you from even writing it in the first place. So I, it was in the finessing, I think, that I was able to pull it off. Yeah, that's a brilliant word. We hear from Sophie, we hear from her partner Aidan, his estranged wife and his daughter, Sophie's parents, as well as one of Sophie's work colleagues. And as each as the story unfolds and, and, and once we get into each of those characters' heads, the more we learn about Sophie from each of them. And the more chilling that the story more the more chilling the story becomes, I have to say. So, um, yeah, well done. Well, there were originally nine voices. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so there was two more. Um, Sophie's brother and another colleague um, and I have to say removing those voices and they also had information to portray about Sophie and removing those voices and dropping that information into other first person voices was the hardest thing I've ever done in my writing career <laughs> yeah but I survived it I survived and, and not only was this book particularly difficult to edit because of the different voices and um but also the plot was quite um intricate so it was quite hard to keep track of 
you know, who was saying what, when. Um, and I, at one point, ended up with a color-coded spreadsheet so I could make sense of, you know, so I could um, make sure that um, everything was happening at the right point. I mean, I was sure in the first draft, but by the time you change it, you become very unsure as to, you know, what's happened when and when and very confused. Yeah. So um, there was a color-coded spreadsheet floating around with each voice and um, major, you know, turns in the plot and things like that. Sounds very technical. It was very technical in the end. I, I mean, I was quite glad that, you know, I have that mathematical side to my to me because I used to be an accountant. So I was quite glad that I could draw on that mathematical part of my um persona indeed indeed now you deal with many serious issues in this book i mean workplace bullying was one there's the moral and ethical issues associated with infertility and unwanted frozen embryos challenges of single parenthood mental health and even suicide did you deliberately set out to explore these issues or did they just evolve as you explored the story more um look i they were all they're all things that were at the back of my mind um but they're all in there for a reason um, with the corporate bullying, which seems to have got a lot of attention, and I've been asked to write quite a number of articles on corporate bullying, which makes the book sound really corporate, but it's not a corporate book. It's really about, you know, how some people can be really tough in the workplace, you know, and tough to work for. But they, um, and, and sometimes those very people um, may, may not even regard themselves as so, you know what I mean? They, they have no idea that they are so tough sometimes. Um, but, um, with that, the corporate bullying was in the book in order to show this other side to Sophie. Mm. Um, um, so you see her family, you see her at work and, and work's always been a really important part of people, you know, characters for me. I always like to see my characters in, you know, in their workplace and what they do because it's such a big part of life. Um, so with the infertility, you know, um, that was um, something, and particularly, you know, um, egg harvesting and unwanted eggs. That was something that was kind of on my radar for quite some time. And it felt like the right book to bring it in because so our, um, Chloe needed some ongoing connection with Aiden um, so that he couldn't quite walk away if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, I know they have Jasmine, but there was this other pressing issue that needed to be resolved and it felt like the right book to have, you know, they felt like the right issue, mm. especially as Aiden is, you know, su such a black and white individual and um, very high morals generally, you know what I mean? So it felt like the right book to explore that particular issue. Yeah, it definitely tested him. Yeah, yeah. Um, so even though with some of these things, you know, you, I, when I set off, when I set out, I don't necessarily want to explore, you know, some issues you do want to explore. Um, I certainly wanted to explore, you know, the idea of, you know, unfairness and how it might fester. I wanted to explore, you know, pain and how it affects all our personalities. Um, and, you know, and the idea of a victim being a very complex individual back on your comment about you being an accountant so you, I understand that you once had a corporate career and as a, as a finance manager in IT so you know you've talked about the fact that you know this book is now 
being touted as a you know as a corporate book because you, you deal with this workplace bullying issue. Can you tell me, or d- did you have any experiences in the corporate world which directly form part of Sophie's working life? Um, I did have one particular experience, um, and it was when I was in Western Australia and I was working in a very high-stakes project with a colleague, um, and this colleague um, was very enthusiastic about this project we were working on, and he would call me at all hours of the day and night, um, sometimes as late as 11 p.m. at night, and then I'd wake up the next morning and there'd be dozens of more emails and texts from him. And he, I I was, you know, very, you know, accomplished at the time and, you know, pretty tough myself, but he really got under my skin and, and um, you know, I felt hounded by him. And anyway, I eventually confronted him and asked him to just, you know, stop harassing me. And his reaction really stayed with me. He was astounded. He had no idea of the fact that his behavior had gone over the line of what was acceptable. And and that thought has stayed with me, or even though that was, you know, 15, 20 years ago, that idea has stayed with me um, because um, bully, even though he wasn't exactly bullying, but he was harassing me, um, they, don't, they rarely know that they, what they are. If you know what I mean, it's yeah. not like they go, yeah, I know I'm a bully. They've no idea that yeah. they're bullies. In any schoolyard situation of bullies, the child who's the bully or the parents of the child who's the bully have no idea mm. and would probably dispute it heartily. And and that idea, you know, stayed with me. And the fact that there's always two sides as well, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, there's always two sides. And, and this was a, um, an opportunity to kind of, you know, um, see all the different sides. And the reader for quite a long time, you know, is sitting on the fence about what's happening at, you know, Sophie's work. They don't know who to believe. Yeah, I found that really interesting. I I too have, you know, experienced things like that in the workplace. But also I think these days it's harder and harder to draw that line between work and home life because we're we're all so connected. You know, we're all carrying our phones with our emails and and you know everybody's reach there's that that constant notion that people are accessible all the time so I found that commentary if, if for want of a better word a really interesting one in this day and age um it, it is and and you know we, with our children we're very aware that bullying can follow them into the bedroom and we take their devices off them and we um try and have that downtime you know, between school and home um, and that line. And we're not so good with ourselves. Um, And, you know, it seems perfectly acceptable to, you know, send emails 24 hours a day. And and always with an email comes the expectation of a response. Um, You know what I mean? So it's, um, you know, and as I said, it's explored and it makes it sound like the whole book is about, you know, that and it's not it's it's really about Sophie's personality and um, she's just one of those very driven high achieving people in the workplace who is constantly working very 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 hard and doesn't understand it when other people don't have the same motivation as she does so moving on to Sophie's relationship with her father Richard I I thought this was a really telling of the book. Um, I, th- I thought their relationship was really important to the central storyline. 
And as a parent myself, I can understand his desire to protect his daughter, to want to see justice done for the wrong that was done to her. But he's more than her protector, isn't he? Um, it, well, he's really her champion. He's always been her champion. So he's one of these parents who pushed, pushed, pushed while she was at school, you know, has always been so proud of her, but also so ambitious for her. So when this particular, um, you know, incident happened to Sophie and her ability to work to the level that she worked before was impacted um, and her health was impacted and her energy levels were impacted, he was just as devastated as she was because his dreams of what she could achieve also came crashing down. Um, and look, there's a bit of that in all of us, isn't there? We're, you know, we all, you know, sometimes are guilty of pushing our children too much and being over ambitious on their behalf. And again, for me, um, Richard, at the end of the day, I wanted him to be reala realistic. Um, I hope he is realistic, um, but at the extreme, <laughs> at the extreme end. Yeah, I mean, I was going to, I, I kind of, Characterise his behaviour as enabling, um, and I, and I. Yes, saw but many parents are like that, aren't yeah, they? Absolutely, yeah. and without yeah, realising it, yeah. Exactly, and I was going to say that that it is realistic, um, and I and I was going to say you explore this line between protecting and enabling so realistically, it's quite scary. <laughs> well, I think some of those. I'm not doing that. I think with some of those things, you are you're drawing from personal experience, and occasionally yeah. we do go too far ourselves. But you know, we have the ability to tap ourselves on the shoulder and say, "Okay, yeah. calm down." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> take a chill pill. <laughs> take a chill pill. Yeah. It's not, you know, um, your child doesn't have to be have to be the best at everything, mm. and it's something you really learn as a parent how being the best how much you desire it at the start for your child, but then how much you realize it doesn't matter at all. You know what I mean? I think that's a learning as a parent. When they're very young, you do, you want them to be the best at everything, and then you quickly realize, well, no, they never will be, and neither should they be. Mm. Um, but in Richard's case, he never really had that moment of self-realization. Unfortunately, no. Unfortunately. <laughs> So I wanted to ask, was it difficult to write unlikable characters? Um, no, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was so much fun because like all, you know, all my other books, the characters have always been so likable and um, this time it was just so much fun to be. It's a bit, I guess it must be like for an actor when the actor, you know, gets to play a baddie. Mm. I would imagine that's lots of fun. So, I, I imagine <laughs> I, it would be, indeed. I, I, had, I really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed just... And it's not like they're terrible, 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 evil characters. They're not. They're just on the side of unlikable mm. in some cases. In yeah. some of them, not all of them. Indeed, that's right. Exactly. So, Bear, I wanted to ask you as well, are you working on anything else at the moment? Yes, I am. So it's a, a similar... Um, genre and um, there are lots of different perspectives <laughs> and I've written in it, it in this very unusual tense and I'm at the moment where I'm cursing myself and I'm almost at the verge of starting another spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked for you last time. It did. <laughs> Great. Yeah. But if listeners wanted to connect with you or to learn more about your books, where can they find you? 
um, they can find me on Facebook and um, and my website. I'm not on Twitter, even though everyone tells me I should be on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> I'm one of those. I'm one of those people. I find it really hard. You know, I'm great if I've got to write something long, but I can't write, you know, little sentences about things. Yeah. So, um, what a privilege it was for me to chat with you today. I loved the missing pieces of Sophie McCarthy, and I know listeners are going to love it too. Thank you so much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books. Thank you, Claudine. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, to find out how to win a signed copy of Burr's compelling and thoroughly fascinating book, head on over to my Facebook or Instagram feed and follow the prompts. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.